So the text today is Titus 3, uh, one, uh, 3, 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. <clears throat> so uh, Lawrence and I get together uh, usually every week and uh, discuss the previous Sunday sermons and do a little evaluation and it gives me some critique. We talk for a little bit. And uh, formally last week, we finished the, uh, the text of Titus, but we felt before going into uh, a few weeks on what it means to be a, a covenant member of Twin Cities Church, uh, we both thought that it would be good to, to kind of summarize and address um, and, and ask the question again, what are, what are the good works that Christ has called us to? Throughout all of of, of Titus, we see a strong emphasis here on good works, as we see here in the passage. Um, the saying is trustworthy, this saying in terms of what, what God has done through Jesus Christ for us. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so we see here a statement of the gospel and a statement of the consequences that the gospel is to have, the effects that the gospel is to have in our life. And it is a life of good works. And so as we saw throughout Titus, I did a little bit of review last week on what all those good works were. But I want to ask the question again, what are, what are the good works? And I, want to, and I want to spend a little bit more time on unpacking those. And then I want to really address um, the change that Christ does in us, that propels us, that empowers us, that energizes us for those good works. And so the idea of good works, the word is a really general broad term, the word work. And it literally means, I mean, if you look up at all the fancy dictionaries and lexicons, it literally says what you find yourself doing. So whatever it is you find yourself doing, and then you have to add the adjective on the front of that, good, okay? Healthy, profitable, excellent, okay? So there are things that obviously we find ourselves doing um, regardless of what your story is, all of us have uh, a story about a season in our life where we were engaged in a lot of works, but they were not good. All right. Sometimes those are long seasons, sometimes those are shorter seasons, but we have to agree with Paul that we were once like the world, engaged in unprofitable works. In fact, they were useless. We were useless in regard to... Um, usefully contributing to the people of God and to the work of God 
in this world. So literally, uh, whatever it is you find yourself doing that is healthy, good, excellent, for the benefit of others. As Paul starts out here, he says, listen, I have devoted my life to God as a servant of his and a messenger of Jesus Christ for one thing, for the sake of the faith of God's people. I live for the sake of God's people. You see it strung throughout his letters. He says, I, I long to die and be with Christ. But I know that my being here is good for you. Therefore, I have resolved to stay here, to work, to give myself the, for the benefit of the people of God. So the second thing, so whatever it is that you find yourself doing, whether you're paid for it or not paid for it, whatever it is, whether it's volunteer time, maybe it's your eight to five job, maybe it's the work that you're doing with your family, maybe it's the work that you're doing in your yard, in your neighborhood, okay, whatever it is that you find yourself doing that is oriented towards good and excellent and helpful things, that's your work. That's your work. And the second thing I want to point out is that your work needs to be seen in the context of always serving others. Just like Paul, I live for the sake of God's people, for the benefit of God's people, right? the people of God now and the people that are going to believe in God through Jesus Christ in the future. That is who I live for. That is who I live for. Um, Tim Keller, I've mentioned this a couple times, his book, Every Good Endeavor, chapter four, just it, it, one of those chapters in a book uh, that I will never forget. It is a great chapter. And the whole chapter is called Work as Service. And he just quickly summarizes and points out in a very clear way that once we get to a point where we recognize that what we do is in service to other people and that God has specifically gifted us and called us for the service of others, to serve others with our capacities, with our gifts, with our resources, with our motivations and our talents, once we are able to see that, it, it totally reshapes and re-energizes what we work for. It's no longer simply something that we do for a certain amount of income or to make ourselves feel great. And he quotes, uh, he quotes Dorothy Sayers in the chapter, and she was making some observations about people that were serving in the military. And she observed that for the first time in their lives, many of those people who had served or were serving in the military found a joy in their work that they had never experienced before because it was very clear to them that they were serving others. And that created a life and an energy and a power in them. And Keller asks this, the question must now be, once we come to a point where we recognize that we are servants of God and that he has called and equipped us to serve other people, he says, the question must now be, how, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and human need? What, what has God gifted and called me to, to engage my life in, in order to meet the needs of the people around me, whether they are family, 
whether they are church family, whether they are the people around us in our neighborhoods, whether it is the, the, the people that we work with or the work that we're doing collectively in service to the world. Okay, we, we need to see that, that we have been given some motivations and some talents and some capacities for the benefit of others. Yes, it will hopefully generate some income. All right, if it's, if it's something that we in our work are going to do for a living. Okay, but that's, that's a sphere. All of us see needs around us that we are called, we are put in a place to engage in. Work in service of others is also not just our activities. One of the things that we see here in the book of Titus, in what he calls us to do, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, okay, employees, employers, he calls us all also to a set of virtues, to, to some characteristics about our lives. And we don't typically think of, of kind of our makeup or our character as work, but, but Paul sees and Jesus sees that who we are in terms of our character and our virtue and how we live in the world, not in our actions, but in our, in our spirit, is, is work. And, and all of you who have uh, strived to overcome habitual sins, all of you who have strived to uh, put on joy in the face of trial, we all know that that is work. Hard work, mental work, sometimes physical work, the work of, of fasting or abstaining from things is work. Some, the work of engaging and practicing things is work. Developing character is work, and it's one of the good works that we are all called to do. John Schneider, in describing Jesus in his book called The Good of Affluence, excuse me, The Good of a, Affluence? Affluence? You know, you say that word aloud and you... It's like, hmm. Anyway, the good of affluence. And he, he is, he, he's, his, his book is writing to address um, what I would call a lack of emphasis that the Gospels have on the, the character of Jesus Christ in his celebration, his expressions of joy, and his, his, his lifestyle of, of celebration and, and kind of partying. Remember, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard at the end of his life. He says this, Jesus' very presence brought the warmth of new life, freedom, camaraderie, peace, good cheer, and a mood of joyous celebration that could not be contained by the old wineskins of tradition. Jesus lived like he was partying and celebrating all the time. And that was what his accusers brought against him. You're just a friend of gluttons and drunkards and prostitutes. You're not like us, conservative, traditional Restrained, dignified. Now, Paul calls us to be dignified, but Jesus was dignified. You know, when asked, Peter 
Peter said, you know, he, Jesus Christ asked his disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter said, well, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, well, are you going to leave me like everybody else has? And Peter says, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And again, this idea of eternal life is not, I'm thinking about getting to heaven, and that's all I'm concerned about. That's not how, that's not the idea of eternal life. That's not the hope of eternal life. That's a part of the hope of eternal life. That someday when we die, we're not going to die. We're going to spend eternity with Christ more alive than we've ever been now in our fleshly bodies. Okay, that is a future hope. But the hope of eternal life is the hope for an abundant life now. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. And it is that abundant life that Christ demonstrated. Yes, as Tim pointed out, the abundant life is going to be a life engaged in suffering, but it's going to produce something in us because of the Holy Spirit's presence that fills us with joy and an experience of life that, that the world will never offer or promise. Our, our lives are to have this sense. Okay, we're, we're to be like Christ. There is something unique and different about us because Christ is living in us. Work that we engage in should lead to maturity in our families and in our church and in the family of God broadly. Right? So anything that we can do to serve others that's going to generate maturity and, and growth and health within us as a church, that's work. Anything that you do that brings excellence and profitability and health in any sphere that you're involved in, that's work. There is work to do everywhere. And in your work, if you, have a, if, you have a, if you engage in a work that you earn a paycheck and you go to a place or you're working from your home, right, you're, there, you're there to serve and bless and be of benefit to others. In return, you get paid. In return, you get paid. But you're li you can't be living just for the paycheck. That's, God didn't make you just to receive a paycheck. He gave you some talents and some ideas and some capacities and some callings and some motivations that, that you singularly are able to do to generate health and soundness and excellence in the world around us. Wherever we're at, we can engage in good works. Wherever we're at regarding our, wherever we're at, regardless of our economic status, our marital status, our maturity in the faith, we can engage in good works. We can live out and express the life of Christ in us. It is dependent, it will be dependent upon um, your maturity level. A person who's mature in the Lord is going to have some capacities for things. Some, some character for things that are going to be different than somebody who's a brand new Christian. But both can engage in good works. Life seasons, all right? A family with a bunch of young kids under five years old, all right? They are not going to be able to engage in the same kind of good works in their neighborhood or in, in maybe the city that a family whose kids are all gone and have more time and resources to serve outside of the family. You said, look where you're at now to the people that God has called you to. 
If you are single, God has called you to the church. He's called you to your spheres of work. He's called you to your extended family. If you're married, you're called to your spouse. If you're married with kids, you're called to the kids. That's a calling. You have kids, that's a calling. A place of work, your neighborhood, those are spheres where God has called you. And you need to see everything. We need to see everything from the context of God's calling us and putting us in those places. So, again, those, that's a, a broad picture of, of our works. And I want to go back and spend the rest of the time on this, on this idea that is expressed here beautifully. I just why I wanted to come back here is because it's it is a beautiful expression of where that 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 power and that energy comes from to have this this zealousness, this devotion. Okay, throughout Titus, be ready for good works, be zealous for good works, be devoted to good works. All right, so that means that we have an, an alertness and this attention and this readiness to serve others. All right? Now, we, we can read this, and, and you can hear me, uh, and think about these things, and we can be really burdened. And we can be really burdened. Like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't have any further capacity or emotional strength to give. Okay? Now, there will be seasons like this as we walk with Christ where, where for one reason or another, we're, where Christ is kind of restricting us and isolating us to do some work in us, okay? Those seasons will be there. But as a whole, as a whole, our, our life is to be this this zealous anticipation and engagement in works and service to others that is inexhaustible, all right? That's, that's really what, what Paul is describing here, that Jesus lived and taught to the point where Jesus died for it. So I want to I take a look at what is it that gives us that energy so that when you're listening to me or reading these passages or contemplating this, you're not thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I want to ask a couple questions. First of all, why does Paul urge good works so strongly? He says, I insist on these things. If they are to flow naturally from the gospel. It seems like they should be things that don't require a lot of work. And Jesus himself said, listen, my burden my yoke is light. My burden is light. Okay? It shouldn't feel heavy and oppressive. So Paul goes out of his way to, quote, burden us with this calling. And so we're burdened for it, but we need to, it should feel light. <laughs> it should feel light. So why is there this, and if it should come naturally out of the gospel, why does Paul have to be so strong and so frequently repeat it? Well, the proof of our genuine reception of the gospel comes when need is presented to us. All right? We know that we really have the gospel when we are presented with a need and we engage it zealously. 
See, that's, that's the gospel. The pressure to serve and give presses us to the gospel. So, so what Paul's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, uh, be zealous, be ready, be engaged, be devoted in good deeds. And the strength and power that you have to do it is, comes from the gospel. Okay, so we see this and we're like, okay, I want to do these things. I want to be engaged in these things. I don't feel like I've got the resources to do it. See, that presses us, presses us deeper into the gospel till we get to a point where, oh, I do have the resources. I didn't grasp the gospel as significantly as I needed to until now because of that, because of that pressure. The pressure to serve and give moves us beyond cultural Christianity. Murray McShane said this. He was a, a pastor. He died when he was 29, but he was just a tremendous pastor um, in Europe. He says, there are many hearing me now. Excuse me. There are many hearing me who now know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. And I would add in to serve, okay, because Paul and his work, it's, it's service, it's giving, it's engaging in good deeds in, in whatever ways they're being called to. But what he's saying now is that if, if your response to a need is to pull back, is to, is to like, eh, I'm not sure I want to do, what he's saying is that you may not know Christ. You may not know the gospel. And if you do, it's not what is energizing you and empowering you at the time. If we back away from practice, we back away from the gospel. You say, well, George, you're not saved by works. Absolutely, you're not saved by works, but you are saved to work. And if you're not working in service to others, then the question has to arise. Do you have the gospel? Because the gospel generates people zealous for good works who are looking for opportunities to serve, to give, to love, to pour out their lives. The true gospel, when it is truly believed, will can only continue to yield profit in the people that are receiving the gospel and the people that are engaged in the work and in the people that they are serving. Keller says this in, in his book, Mercy's, excuse me, Ministries of Mercy. He says, there are two powerful effects that the gospel of grace has on a person who has been touched by it. Two effects. First, the person who knows that he has received mercy while being an undeserving enemy of God. All right? If a, a person who knows that they are an undeserving enemy of God receives the gospel, they will have a heart of love and even especially for the most ungrateful and difficult of persons. You will know that you have the gospel when you can love somebody who is not deserving of your love. Because when you understand the gospel, you understand that you are not deserving of the love that God has shown you through Christ. And so you, you've experienced a love that you know you did not deserve, and, and, and what that does then is its second effect well, you love that person. The second major effect that the gospel of grace has on a person is that it creates spontaneous generosity. You can love the unlovable, and you simply want to start giving away 
who you are and what you have for the benefit of others because, again, that's what you've experienced from God through Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean then by a gospel experience? When I say to ex- you have to have experienced the gospel in order to live this kind of life that's being devoted to and zealous for good works. First of all, to experience the, go- to experience the gospel is to experience God's mercy. There must be an awareness of our wretchedness. All right, it's the Reformation season right now, celebrating 500 years of, of, of the Reformation and of Martin Luther's work 500 years ago. And so I'm reading a recent biography uh, by Eric Metaxas on Martin Luther. And I read this week about Martin Luther's experience of the gospel. So he was a Christian a monk, a priest, a Bible teacher for years before he experienced the gospel. Though I had lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he, God, was placated by my satisfaction, meaning when I got to a place where I felt like I was okay, he could never think that God thought he was okay. So he never, th- he never got to a place where he thought he was okay because it was never good enough. And he did. He, he, would, he would spend hours in confession thinking through all of the possible sins that he committed. And he would leave confession and he'd have to go back to confession. The, the priest that he would confess to got worn out with the hours that they would spend listening to all of the, the sins of Martin Luther and all of the thoughts that he had that were sinful. He could never get away from the fact that he was a sinner. And if he had a bad thought, oh, he's back in the confession booth. And so they like, would send him away to other places so they wouldn't have to listen to his confessions anymore. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. You may not have, very few of us have ever gotten to a place where Martin Luther did in terms of recognizing his own wretchedness, but all of us experience it to some degree, I would think. The scriptures preach that the Holy Spirit is at work in this world convicting us of sin, judgment, and righteousness. Convicting us Do we have a sense of our own wretchedness? For me, I knew that Jesus was king. I knew that I had to believe that he died and rose for my sins. I knew that that God had forgiven me, but at best, I believed that God was still largely disappointed in me. I I never could get to the point, I could really resonate with Martin Luther's words. I could never get to the point to where I could say, God is okay with me. God, God accepts me. Okay, he loves me, but he's got to love me because he's a righteous God, but he's kind of like that begrudging love. You know, we all have things that we begrudgingly love. So we think that God begrudgingly loves us. Well, he created us. What's he going to (laughs) do? He's kind of obligated to love us. And yeah, he gave his son, but he's still not really that pleased with me. He's not delighted in me. He doesn't accept me. 
anything good that happened in my, in my life, I, I saw I was kind of like, ooh, somehow I slid around God's constant desire to discipline and punish me. And so I could be happy with some things because, ooh, God didn't thwart me somehow. So life for me, and, and I, think, I think Martin Luther is accurate in saying, and I don't think it was unique to his experience, we develop anger with God because we never get to a point where we have experienced his love. Have experienced his love. We can read about it, but until it, it, it until we've come to an understanding of it, until we've experienced it, I couldn't escape my conscience and the shame and the guilt that it placed upon me. I, I could resonate with Martin Luther. I could never, my conscience never stopped bothering me. It doesn't matter how good I was or how bad I was or the specific things. It wasn't the point. It really, those, the actions of my life really were not the key. I just always felt condemned. And so there has to be some awareness or experience of your wretchedness that, is, that, that causes some level of mental and emotional pain, depression, anxiety. All of those things Martin Luther experienced to a very significant degree. But then there has to be an experience of comprehending the gospel. Martin Luther says, I began to understand, this is when he was preaching and teaching Romans and Galatians in the seminary. I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness, righteousness that we receive. God's gift of righteousness to us. God's gift of making us right. Of washing and renewing and regenerating us. That is a gift. The passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And he says this, here I felt, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So you, you, need, to have, you need to experience your wretchedness Yes, you are far worse than you ever thought, deserving more punishment than you could ever think. But you are loved more than you could ever imagine or comprehend. And, and, and that God has gifted you his righteousness, not just to take away your sin, but to bring you into an experience of an abundant life that, that Christ demonstrated while he was on earth and that we hope for. I can remember... I can remember very vividly when I experienced that. I was studying through Romans, teaching, teaching Romans to my friends. I don't know when exactly I became a Christian because I could say that I mentally affirmed the tenets of the gospel at a very early age. But in terms of when I felt the grace and the love of God come upon me, it just was... I could tell you what I was wearing, where I was at, where I was sitting, the people who I was with. It was an amazing experience of freedom. And since then, 
since then. There has been this, this desire to love and serve God because of he, he's released me from my shame. My shame had been burying me for years. And the freedom from that shame, it, it, it continues to energize me. And the more I understand the gospel, the more it energizes me. Yes, I have days where I'm like, I don't want to work anymore. Okay, so we have those seasons. And sometimes they last a long time. All right, and, you, and we, come, we become emotionally exhausted. You know what? We need to rest. We need to celebrate. We need to fast. There are some things that we do that we need to practice and engage in to, to keep a hold tight on this gospel. Tight hold on this gospel. And then, so what we then, hap, ha, what happens then is it, two things. Regeneration, and I wanted to keep this text up so we could look at it. By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So I want to be just real quick with this. Regeneration is born again. Okay, born again. You're not the old person anymore. You've been born again. So oftentimes we think, oh, if I could just go back and start over this particular season of my life. If I could be a better spouse from this point on, if I could be a better parent from this point on, if I could be a better employee, if I wouldn't have made that mistake 15 years ago. You know, you guys, I mean, we all know we run through those scenarios. No, you've been born again, all right? But you're not born again to be the same thing. Okay, you're not born again. I'm not born again to be the same George Stagg that was born 45 years ago. I was born again to something, well, something new. And So this is low night of Greek English lexicon, a very technical and great dictionary. Something new and different with the implication of becoming superior. That's what renewal means. So born again into something new that is different and greater and more superior. And what is that? It is the gift of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out on us richly, unifying us with God. You are not you anymore. You have been baptized into God himself. And the righteousness of God is now you. And righteousness, again, one of these religious words, it, it means you are complete. You are full. You are whole. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. Look at these words. Poured out on us richly so that we might become heirs. These things are profitable. Those are all economic, financial terms. And he's wanting to communicate to us that we have been brought into an abundance we have been brought into wealth. We have been brought into an inheritance. And when you have been brought into wealth with abundance and an inheritance in the gospel, you want to give it away. This is what we should realize if we've experienced the gospel. And this is why Paul says, be devoted to good works, be devoted to good works, be zealous for good works, be ready for good works, because he knows if he's drawing on people, if he's giving those commands to people who have experienced the gospel, they will be ready 
because they know that they have an eternal inheritance according to the riches of Christ with a wealth that is beyond measure. John Schneider, again in this book, The Good of Affluence, says, in leaving everything to be with him, he's referring to the, the, to the disciples, and we all have this choice before us as well. In leaving everything to be with him, they got back everything many times over. Because what did Jesus say? Hey, Peter's saying, hey, hey, Jesus, we left our homes. We left our jobs. We left our families. And Jesus says, oh, you'll get it back many times over. In this life and in the one to come. That's that eternal life. That's that hope of eternal life. What do all of those things think they bring us? Family and homes and wealth and jobs and all these kind of things. They, they bring us a sense of, of, of strength and of, of wholeness and of fullness and of having things that we can, that we can share. But what he's saying, in, in Christ, that, that fullness of what we sense that we possess and what we sense that we have as a treasure and what we sense that we can give away the, what Christ is saying is that the, the, your experience of what you have and what you can give will be multiplied many times over. For some of us, that may mean material resources. And, and, and again, this, in this, this book, The Good of Affluence, I'm reading, we, we as a culture are living in one of the, the few times and places where the culture is affluent. But Christ is saying, there, you have and po will possess a wealth many times over. Now, eternal life, future, eternal life. That is, you can't even compare it with what you're leaving behind. Once we know the gospel, we should be living out of a sense of this abundance. Okay? Whether it's material abundance or emotional abundance or we have an abundance and as christ says if you are good stewards of what you have you are going to receive more okay that's across the board you're going to reap what you sow you sow generously you're going to reap generously that's in all areas lives of service giving helping people, whatever it might be, whatever work that you find yourself doing, if you sow generously, you're going to reap generously. It's going to be profitable and excellent for you and for the people that you're serving. So what do we do if we're not feeling like we've had that gospel experience? Well, it's quite possible that you don't know Jesus. We can mentally affirm the gospel but never know Jesus. Or you may have affirmed the gospel, and you may have believed the gospel, but maybe you've never been pressed to what the gospel calls us to. And maybe, and maybe because you've never been pressed, you've never felt the guilt and the obligation of what the gospel calls you to and have sensed your own wretchedness because you're not meeting it. I grew up, we were talking this week, all right, I'm not as heavy-handed with my kids on when they get up on the weekends as my mom was when we were growing up. 
But on the weekends, we had to, if, if my father was outside in the yard or in the garage working, it was assumed that we would be up outside helping my father work. So my mom would come down, get out of bed, get out there and help your dad. You should be ashamed of yourself. Anna goes, that, that wasn't a healthy way to grow up, George. I, I know. So I had a lot of shame because of these, you should be ashamed of yourself. Shame is not a bad thing if it leads you to the gospel. You don't want to live under shame. But the experience of shame, so if you, if you are a Christian and you've never felt a sense of your own wretchedness, it's because you haven't looked at the obligations of the gospel heavy enough. You should have people around you speaking truth to you and loving you and saying, hey, here's what the gospel's calling you to. And if you're feeling like, ooh, you made me ashamed, oh, good. Take that shame to the cross. Jesus experienced shame. He scorned it and looked forward to the joy of eternal life that lay before him. What if we do, what do we do if we have experienced that gospel experience? What do we do when we read Titus and we know that we've experienced the gospel? Well, here, you keep engaging in good deeds so you can keep deepening in your experience of the gospel. And when you think you've served and done and given enough, keep being devoted to pressing needs, and Christ will keep taking you deeper into an experience of eternal life. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the freedom that it gives us in overcoming shame and in overcoming our own sense of wretchedness. What a tremendous, tremendous gift the gospel gives and takes us into a freedom and a feeling of, of life and abundance and celebration that is from the spirit that you have richly poured out upon us, on us. God, I pray that we as a church would experience this freedom and sense of celebration and affluence, affluence of spirit, rich in spirit that would, that would propel us to decades and decades and generations and generations of good works here at Twin Cities Church. In your son's name, amen.